Well, welcome to episode two of the Practice Makes Faithful podcast. This is our second official episode. We are continuing talking about the series that we're in at Grace Chapel called A Better Story. So we're going to be diving into that. We've had an interesting weekend here at Grace Chapel because we had our big Georgia snowstorm of like, what do we have? What did we get? About an inch? Yeah, we, we may have like an inch, inch and a half here where we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So. It, was, uh, it was crazy, wild weekend. We couldn't have our services, ice on the road, all that stuff. But hopefully, those of you who are connected with GC, hopefully you got to tune in online and get to hear our message that way. But uh, we're, we're excited to continue in with this conversation. We yeah, did. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so we're in this series called A Better Story. Paul kicked it off last week. And one of the things I really like about this series is that it's very, at least up to this point, like the messages are very interconnected. Like I kind of felt like one, it could have been really one just really long message. You just divide it in half. These were really quite connected. So tell us a little bit about that, a little bit about what connects this with that first week. Yeah, so, so as we looked at last week's message, just kind of a recap even of, of what we talked about in the podcast, you know, we, we looked at the fact that, that certainly we are shaped and influenced by culture, and we also looked at the fact that uh, there are a number of things that have shaped and influenced culture over the last uh, few years. You know, so we talked about the fact that we've got secularism and then humanism, you put those together, you got secular humanism and what that looks like, the belief that really we as, as, as a people have, have the ability to um, create our own morality in a sense. We, we can govern ourselves. We don't need God telling us what's moral or good anymore. We can figure that out on our own because we're the pinnacle of everything that exists in a sense. And then out of that, that arose the postmodern worldview. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that was kind of looking at, at society and looking at culture around us, especially Western culture. Um, and then yesterday we kind of uh, took a look at the fact that, that that culture has certainly impacted what has happened, or as of yesterday, um, you know, for us it was, it was yesterday, for, uh, you know, it was this past weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we looked at the fact that, that certainly that has had an impact upon the church, and, and we kind of tried to answer the question, how has it had an impact upon the church? So, yeah, very much interconnected uh, this, this coming weekend's uh, message and obviously the next week's podcast will be quite connected as well very much almost like the the whole month is like one one uh, long message in a sense yeah it's awesome i love that and yesterday you introduced like two two pretty big concepts that okay. might be unfamiliar to some of us i want to see if we can just kind of break those down and talk about okay. that a little bit there was this idea of post-christian culture yeah and on this other phrase of deconstruction so uh, let's talk about post-Christian culture first. What is post-Christian culture? What do you mean by that? That's something that maybe some of us have heard. It's kind of becoming a more popular phrase, but it might be something that we don't really understand. What, what do you mean by post-Christian culture? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, just reconnecting with last week's message again, we talked about what it meant to be post-modern, which is after modernity. Um, you know, so that modernity was one way of thinking, one worldview, one system. Um, and so postmodern just means we're after that. And so in a sense, post-Christian is the same thing. Um, it's an acknowledgement that, that at one point in time, uh, we operated in a way that really valued, highly valued, uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview mm-hmm. and, and everything that went along with that. A high regard for scripture. You know, even think about the fact that you walk into a courtroom um, and, and as a witness, we used to say, now put your right hand on the Bible, 
right? Mm -hmm. Put your hand on the Bible, raise, raise your hand and, and swear to tell the whole truth because we had this belief that if you, if you, told, if you said you were going to tell the truth and you had your hand on the Bible, well, then that must mean you're really going to be honest because there are obviously consequences that would come to anybody who would lie while having just sworn on the Bible, you know, and that's, you know, obviously we look at swearing on the Bible as kind of an, I mean, it's an awkward thing at this point in time for us to think about that actually being something that somebody would do uh, as a practice, but it just kind of shows and exposes the way that, um, again, there was a high value for yeah. scripture, a high value for the message of Jesus, a high value for God. And a lot of those things that we used to place a high value in now, our culture around us anyways, placing a much lower value in. So mm -hmm. that's really what it means to be post-Christian in a sense. The way that I define that um, this past weekend, and I'll just read that definition real quickly, is, is that to be post-Christian means that you no longer embrace a Christian worldview or accept the wisdom of Christian values as a rule. Mm. Okay. Then an extra little piece on that that I shared uh, is that while that is true, Post-Christian culture often wants to continue to enjoy many of the benefits established, um, many benefits of a society really established upon those Christian yeah. principles. Yeah. Uh, and I use just uh, as, as an example, um, you know, this idea that, that really Western society highly values human rights. Mm -hmm. But that has not been true for much of history. In fact, it wasn't until the advent of uh, Christian thought being accepted in, in a broad-based worldwide way that, um, that cultures began to value rights of individuals, you know, rights of single people. Um, you know, certainly I, I used as well the word oppression as an example to say, you know, what, what used to be uh, is, is there was just this common belief, and we can see this in writing of, of antiquities, especially uh, among writings of generals or warlike kings, uh, that they just had this belief that if they were stronger than someone else, that that gave them the right to dominate this other person, this other culture, these other people. You know, we see that even true in, um, in the history of this nation within the concept of manifest destiny. Well, it's our destiny to colonize the entire world and make them just like us. Why? Well, because we're stronger, right? Yeah. But we never looked at the fact that, that that might be seen as oppressive by other people. And so um, now, again, think about this. Within our, our current culture, within Western culture, the setting of Western culture, uh, human rights are highly valued. Um, we look at oppression and we say that's a really bad thing. No, one person should not be able to impress another and one group of people should not be able to, uh, to oppress other groups of people. That, that just shouldn't happen. Why do we feel that way? Because we haven't always felt that way. Yeah. yeah. Right? So we feel that way because of years of reading Scripture, of seeing the teachings of Jesus. Now, granted, there are people who have held to the teachings of Jesus that have exploited the words of Scripture at times. But we have to be honest and say it does not hold with the teachings of Jesus in any way, shape, or form to oppress another person or to not value another human being. And so definitely human rights find themselves deeply rooted within the concepts of Scripture. And so, um, you know, again, 
I think that's what it means in a sense to be post-Christian. We're still yeah. holding on to a lot of these things that, that have ties to the Christian worldview, mm-hmm. um, but we're doing it without the actual Christian system in a sense. It's interesting. I've heard a lot of conversation on that too, and it's almost like we are living in like a little bit of a experiment right now to see right. like in our postmodern, post-Christian yes. culture, can we get, can you drop Jesus from it right. and still hold to some of his teachings, not all of his teachings, right. but certain things of the value of human life. And it's, it's an interesting time in our culture yes. where we are experiment not not we personally, but our culture is experimenting. It is a social see, experiment. Can we continue forward? Is that going to work? And it doesn't seem too promising. Yeah, yeah. Based I've got on a friend who describes it this way. <laughs> he says, um, you know, if, if you go into a field where there are beautiful flowers growing, these beautiful flowers are beautiful. They become beautiful because they're connected to the soil that absorbs this water. So they're connected to this fertile soil. Mm-hmm. But what you want to do is you want to take some of those beautiful flowers and bring them into your home because you want to beautify your home. And you know, beautiful flowers make make a, a home even in the middle of wintertime look a little bit more lively, right? So you bring those beautiful flowers into your home, these cut flowers, you put them in a vase, you put water in that vase, you may even try to add some nutrients into that water. But those flowers that might live for, I don't know how much longer in a field, for at least their lifespan within those in a field, mm-hmm. within less than a week will start to wilt in that vase and just yeah. not look good anymore. And so that's kind of the way that he relates um, this, you that's know, a, what is happening in society yeah. right now to say, you know, we're, we're cut flowers in a vase in a sense. And so in, in some way, we're retaining some of these things that come from the fertile soil in which we were once planted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's going to go by the wayside at some point in time. How mm-hmm. long will it last? Like you said, it's almost like, uh, like, like a real life experiment. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So well, let's go to the other, this okay. other term. Um, talking about post-Christian, yeah. other deconstruction. And it's yes. interesting because I kind of see deconstruction to be almost a personal, like individual yeah. level yes. of what post-Christian is for our whole culture. Uh, talk, uh, talk a little bit about what, what is deconstruction. Yeah, I think, I think you're right about that. I think, I think deconstruction or, or post-Christian culture is what happens when you reach a critical mass of people that have deconstructed elements of their faith that they were once connected yeah. to maybe is a way you could say that. So yeah, it is. I think it's a more granular view of what leads a culture to become post-Christian. And so mm-hmm. um, I'll give you, the, again, the definition uh, that, that I used uh, this weekend in, in our message to say that, that the deconstruction is the act of piece by piece taking apart a belief, a belief system or a worldview that was once adhered to and often then replacing it with, with another. Or, or then making and that can be up any another. any worldview that you're coming from. Yeah. It's not just yeah. a Christian thing, but certainly in our context, that's the way we're thinking yes. of it. But yeah. yes, within our context, we're we're talking about primarily Christian deconstruction mm-hmm. um, because we were a Christian society, and so you've had a critical mass of people who have deconstructed their faith, have walked away from either their faith entirely, have walked away from certain elements of their faith, so that it's. It, it sort of still resembles maybe the Christian worldview, but isn't so much anymore, um, you know. And so certainly we know that, that many of us, that most people that are Christians are because they were raised in a household, uh, a family in which Christianity was 
um, was central to what that, that, that family was, to who they were, you know. So, uh, so faith passed from one generation to the next, and at some point in time there was a, a disruption. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened. In fact, we can talk about maybe how deconstruction happens a little more uh, in just a few minutes, but there was a, a disruption in that. Uh, that child that had this faith passed down starts to disassemble the faith that the parent passed on. Piece by piece, it's taken apart. Questions are asked, sometimes go unanswered, that kind of thing. And, and the next thing you know, um, that child is now no longer either Christian at all or at least not Christian the way mom and dad were, were Christian. And so we call that deconstructing, you know, just taking something apart. So if you construct something, you're building it piece by piece, you deconstruct it, you're taking apart piece by piece. Mm -hmm. That's good. So you referenced an article yesterday that you wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday, I say again, <laughs> yeah. on your message, reference this article on uh, deconstruction mm -hmm. that you wrote called Six Reasons We Are Drawn to Christianity's Deconstruction Stories. And before we dive into that, that is available on Renew.org, right? Yeah, Renew.org. Check that out, read that themselves. Yeah, that's right. We can link it uh, as well in the, in the show notes yeah, so that, that you'll be, be able to just click straight into it um, and, and have access to that. Yeah, so we can do that. That'd be great. And you said that the main point of this article is that many of us are drawn towards these uh, discussions mm -hmm. of deconstruction and deconversions because at some level we tend to identify with these stories. We identify with that. Yeah. I explain what do you mean by that? Let's just, let's, kinda, let's hash that yeah. out a little bit. So, so as I sat down to, to write this article, um, I didn't want to just write another article that tried to understand the whole process of, of deconstructing faith. Um, there, there are many that have done that. In fact, referenced uh, in, in this past weekend's message, um, and we can link this as well if I can find the video clip of, of John Mark Comer walking through uh, and explaining how people deconstruct their faith or why people deconstruct their faith. And he talked about that happening on an internal and an external level, uh, internal wounding, um, maybe wounds dealt at an external level that now start to ha lead to where somebody starts to question their faith, you know, a rise in secular ideology in a way that starts to uh, combat or at least uh, oppose itself to Christian ideologies. And so mm -hmm. there are lots of reasons why people do deconstruct their faith. But I was trying to write this uh, article more from the perspective of why are we so drawn to these stories? Mm -hmm. Why are we drawn to these stories? And I think that on some level it's, it's because um, we, we all can identify with these stories. Um, you know, certainly as, as we've seen some of the very prominent uh, deconstructions over the last few years. You know, I, I can remember uh, for me in particular um, when, when I saw that Joshua Harris, and if you don't know who Joshua Harris is, uh, he was a, a very prominent uh, preacher, uh, also an author wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which I read in college, uh, wrote a book that we use here within our radical mentoring uh, mm -hmm. programs, uh, we, we've used anyway in the past, um, that talks about the importance of the church, why we need the church. Um, and, and that guy of all people uh, came to this place where he no longer um, held to, uh, to the principles of, of faith at all. Um, think about uh, Jen Hatmaker and some of the transitions she's made and what she used to believe and now believes. Um, it talked about um, the YouTube stars, Rhett and Link, which mm -hmm. I know you're, you're very familiar with those guys. And so yeah. we maybe could even talk about that a little bit. Talked about John Steingard, 
who was uh, with the band Hawk Nelson. And so, I mean, over and over again, we've got these examples of, of these very prominent people. And I, I'm sure, you know, especially as being, I, I watched the Rhett and Link thing just because I wanted to understand what they went through. I wanted mm-hmm, to hear their mm-hmm. story. Um, I know you you engaged with those guys well before they ever yeah, went yeah. through that. So I'm certain for you, there was a draw there. I don't know if you want to talk about that or share a little bit about, um, you know, what, what, how you felt during that time as, as they were walking through their, their deconstructing, yeah. uh, the way they deconstructed their faith. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's interesting with these deconstruction stories that there is something, I guess, just more generally that I do feel like there is that draw towards them. I think you're good on pointing that out. I really would agree with that. And yeah, I've been a fan of Written Link for quite a while. Still am a fan of their YouTube mm-hmm. channel and such. And uh, it, uh, it it was interesting to hear hear that story, hear them share their story of how they moved out and moved away from their Christian faith. And I, I think there's a level of, I guess on two sides of it, there's one side where I, I have a level of respect for their authenticity. And I think on yeah, any of these sure. stories of deconstruction, there is something refreshing at times to hear of people's authenticity of really sharing that story and something that unfortunately at times we don't always feel we can share in the church of, and that there is this level of authenticity there. But then at the same time then, then as you hear this story and you hear like it's kind of a, a slowly but surely little little pieces of their faith and their story specifically that you hear that kind of they walk away from this aspect and this aspect and it's it's always tragic to hear that and there's always these spots where you know you want to respond like that's that's not always Jesus that you're walking away from right. that you're walking away from <clears throat> kind of some ideas that I would not I wouldn't agree with at all I wouldn't have even yeah. seen that as a part of my faith uh, so it's it's interesting. I think that's a, a great point. And some of these deconstruction stories, when you dig a little more deeply into them, you see that um, it almost seems at times that they're not deconstructing necessarily their faith in Jesus. Now that's where it leads to, and that's what they even assume yeah. it is often. But what they're deconstructing is their negative church experience. Yeah. Or um, or or maybe uh, maybe they're deconstructing uh, a, a teaching. That, that actually didn't have his roots in, in biblical culture, but had its roots in a, a pseudo-Christian culture at times. Yeah. And so, you know, they're deconstructing because they're reacting to the way that the church has been overly judgmental uh, at times and, and, and didn't show love where um, love should have been shown and instead showed judgment, or, or at least didn't have an equal measure of truth and love in the way the church engaged with a particular situation the way Jesus would. Grace yeah. and truth, you could even say all there was was truth. And so they're pulling that apart and saying that's not right, and then they turn against the whole thing because of the identification of something where I'd say, well, I agree with you. That's not right. We don't have to throw all this away, though, because that's yeah. not right. And, and it's always—it's not always as and simple as that. To be fair, yeah. But sometimes it is. And something I—I don't know—seem to hear a lot in some of those stories. That it does it, it at times feels like a house of cards faith, yes. to where you start to introduce a question on one thing, one aspect. You start to rethink uh, creation of the world of leaving maybe a more fundamentalist idea of like a six-day creation, you start to 
align with more of an evolutionary framework, and then it starts to make the whole faith fall apart. And at times, it just and that's just one one example that we don't need to go into. But at times, it just feels like it's not always based on Jesus and the way that it's set up. And it's it, they're just tragic to hear. Yeah, yeah, they are they are tragic to hear, and I think that's part of uh, that's part of why we're drawn to them. And I'll jump back to the article here in just a second, but. You know, it is almost that train wreck effect, yeah. you know, or car wreck effect, yeah. the, the rubbernecking effect, you know, when you're driving down the road and, you know, everybody as you're driving by the accident, even if the accident's on the other side of the interstate, you're going to slow down and everybody's going to look. Mm -hmm. uh, you always wonder, why are we slowing down when we're headed in the southbound lane and the accident was in the northbound lane? But it is kind of that, that human instinct to look because, um, you know, even with an accident, we're imagining what would it have been like to be part of that accident or we've got empathy for the people who are involved. And I think that's part of what's going on when, when we uh, are drawn to these stories where people have piece by piece taken apart their, their faith, yeah. um, you know, as they knew it anyway. And so, uh, so in this article, I, I give six reasons why I believe we're, we're drawn to these stories. Um, and I'll walk through those just piece by piece real quickly. And then the, in that, I, I want to be, because I think, Ben, you bring up a, a really, really good point uh, about something else that draws us to these stories. And it's not something I covered in the article, but it could have been a seventh point uh, for certain. And, and it's that we are sometimes drawn to the authenticity. These guys are at least telling us the truth. They're telling us the truth about their experience. Mm. They're not being deceptive. They're not hiding. Um, and sometimes we feel like that that is what happens in the church. And maybe that's even kind of covered to some degree in, in the first two points that I bring out in the article. So we can just maybe mm -hmm. jump into yeah. that. Um, I think the first reason that we are, we're drawn to these stories is because if we're honest, we all have questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, every one of us do. You know, I, I think, um, so I'm, I'm 43 at this point in time. Um, you know, I would say in the time that I've been a Christ follower, um, in the time that I've been a disciple of Jesus, which would go back to, um, you know, for me, really, when I, when I really came and committed myself to Jesus, somewhere, you know, late, 19 or so, um, I, was, I was in college. I had had Christian leanings before that, but then had kind of walked away and then came back the summer after my sophomore year saying, this is, this is real and, and I've got to live like it's real. But I had that deep conviction of having to live like it's real and then after that, I've had several times where I've had these seasons of doubt and struggle. And, and um, so again, we, we've all got questions. Well, I, I can remember uh, um, the first time I think I had a real, a real struggle with some questions that I could not answer. Mm -hmm. So there was this book that came out in 2003 called The Da Vinci Code. It became a movie as well, written by an author named Dan Brown. And Dan Brown is uh, an, an interesting guy. He's like a modern day Gnostic in some sense. Um, he, he, definitely, uh, he definitely finds value in the person of Jesus in some way, but also believes in a sense that, um, that the, the Catholic Church of the medieval ages, especially um, uh, of, of the dark ages in a sense, really corrupted the teachings of Scripture. And, and, and that was the case he makes in the Da Vinci Code is that we can't trust Scripture as we have it now because the Catholic Church, they were the arbiters of that Scripture. 
and they were the church that also charged people indulgences so that they could make it to heaven, the church that faked relics and all these other things, and the church of, uh, of you know, papal control over the Holy Roman Empire and all, you know, so he makes this big case against uh, Christianity as we know it, calling into doubt the gospels that we have and uh, the, the, the early scriptures that we have and, and a, whole other, a whole host of different things that he, he uh, put some questions out there about. And so I, I read this novel, The Da Vinci Code, but then also listened to some uh, interviews with Dan, Dan Brown and walked away uh, seeing that he believed most of what he put forward there. And, you know, a lot of my friends as I was going through the struggle would say, it's just a novel, it's just a story. But to me, it was not just a story. To me, it was another set of facts. It was another truth, potentially. And if this truth was true and my truth was not true in a sense, or what I believed about Scripture was no longer true, then I had a problem. Mm-hmm. And in fact, then my whole faith would fall apart, yeah. right? If I couldn't, yeah. if I could no longer, um, you know, if I could no longer believe the story of Scripture, if I could no longer believe that the Gospels portray Jesus the way He actually was, if maybe there were other Gospels that we should be looking at to really find out who Jesus was then now my faith was really standing on shaky ground. Hmm. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think that, that's, that's just kind of a summary of some of the questions I struggled with at that point in time. I've struggled with other questions since. Um, but again, I, I think we all have questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that takes us to the, the second thing. The second reasons I think we're, we're drawn to these stories at times is um, we all have questions, but many of us don't have a, same pla- a safe place to ask those questions. That's and good. so, uh, you know, I, I talk about that and, and, and say that, you know, the reality is many who begin to deconstruct their faith look for a safe place to find answers to their questions because the answers still do matter. Mm-hmm. So if we don't have a safe place, especially within the community that we're currently tied to, which would be the church community for many who start to deconstruct their faith. So basically what we're saying is if the church is not a safe place to ask difficult questions, if the questions that we have are regarded as dangerous questions, um, or if they're blown off, um, or if we're told, no, we don't ask those kinds of questions here. If that is what the church is for those who are deconstructing their faith, then we should not be surprised when the answers that people find as they start to come from sources outside of the church lead them away from faith, not toward faith, mm-hmm. right? So we don't have a safe place to ask those questions. Well, for me, um, I was extremely, extremely fortunate to be able to go, uh, you know, so one, I've got a dad who was a Bible college professor. So, uh, you know, he's got his doctorate in ministry. And so I was able to have conversations with him. Uh, There was another professor at the the Bible college that I had graduated from uh, that I was able to call and have conversations with him. Uh, I was upfront. In fact, I mean, I was working in youth ministry at the time, you know, so here I am having read this book and now I'm deconstructing elements of my faith to some degree. I'm working in youth ministry, but I had a couple of elders that I'd build a relationship with and I was able to go be honest with those guys and Mm say, I'm struggling right now and here's why I'm struggling. And they didn't blow it off. Um, You know, I can think of one in particular who took very seriously um, the, the questions I was wrestling with and then confessed, again, here's that authentic experience, Mm -hmm. confessed the fact that he'd struggled as well, but that every time he'd struggled, he'd found good uh, and and truly satisfying answers to his questions. Well, for me, you know, um, my professors, my dad, my search in, uh, you know, 
Christian bookstores at that time. You know, we, we had, you know, the online experience was there, but we weren't just put purchasing all of our books from Amazon at that point in time. So I went to Family Christian Bookstore, which was in our, in our mall at that point in time. And I went and I bought several books that happened to deal with the question I was struggling with. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were about the Da Vinci Code and the claims that Dan Brown makes in the Da Vinci Code. And so um, I found a safe place to voice my questions and I found really good, satisfying answers. And so where my faith, where I began to deconstruct my faith, my faith was reconstructed in a way uh, to where it was more solid and, and, and on a, a more firm footing that's really good. than it, than it had really been good. before. And so I think that's what happens when we have a safe place. But yeah. the reality is the opposite often happens when we don't have yeah. a safe place. So really that, that part of it is a plea for, for churches to be a safe place for people to ask those questions. Yeah. Amen. Um, to, to not just, you know, parents, if, if your child is struggling with a difficult question, to not just say, well, that's why it's called faith. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we do have to go there. You know, sometimes there are some things we have to accept on faith, uh, but there are so many things, uh, so many places where we can find good answers to difficult questions. Yeah. And it, it can be not just a blind faith, it can be a very well-informed step of faith that we're then able to take forward. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, that's the... Uh, the second piece. Um, the third reason that I think we're drawn into many of these uh, stories is, is because, you know, we live in a time where there is truly just a deep mistrust of, of things that are institutional and organizational in nature. Mm -hmm. We don't trust our government. No, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, there's a low trust of government yep. right now. Yep. There's a low trust um, of, of our media institutions. Uh, there's a low trust of the church in general. Mm -hmm. um, there's a low trust for medical professionals right now. We don't know which medical professional we can trust as, as it relates to how we're supposed to handle things with the coronavirus. Um, you know, there is a low trust of scientists right now. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Almost anything institutional or organizational, yeah, um, so right. there, there's a mistrust for right now. So uh, that, that does not bode well for one of the most longest, you know, for one of the longest standing institutions, um, you know, known <laughs> to man in a sense, you know, 2000 years, the church has, has stood as, as an institution and an organization. And, and part of that points out the problem. Sometimes we've been too institutional in nature, the church has. Sometimes we've been too organi organizational in nature. Um, but because the church is an organization, we're often lumped into that, that group. Now that, that reconnects with, with something that um, John Mark Comer points out in, in the video clip that I'll, I'll try to link here. Um, it's that sometimes th there's, there are reasons why we don't always trust our, our church leaders. And we've got to be honest about that. We've got to be honest about the scandals that have happened throughout the years in church history, some that Dan Brown was able to point out and, and his little bit of truth was able to uh, kind of hook me in a way that I was taken uh, deep into his deception. Um, but that's the way that, that Satan, our enemy, works. He takes a little bit of truth and then uses that little bit of truth to hook you and pull you into deception. Mm -hmm. And so because there are scandals, even within the church today, does not mean that the message of Jesus is not true. 
you know, if we judge the message of Jesus based upon the quality of those people who, or the quality of the followers of Jesus, well then, yeah, we're all going to walk away, you know, we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. As a follower of Jesus, I'm not perfect. If, if I am your standard, I will disappoint you. I guarantee it's going to happen. But the beauty of Jesus is he lived this perfect life and doesn't disappoint. You know, God doesn't disappoint. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, definitely, there have been reasons to mistrust the church or specific leaders at times, corruption, uh, abuse. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but because we already have this mistrust for institutions, when we see uh, another church leader fall, Boy, we're drawn into that story. When we see somebody talking about their deconstruction story and they talk about their experience with the church and why they just don't trust the church, we're drawn into that story. And I think that the fourth reason really connects with that as well um, is that we, we're also drawn to uh, the, the me against the world narrative um, that many who are deconstructing their faith tell. You know, so again, it's, it's, uh, here, here's this institution called the church and the church has told us all these lies, and now I'm, I'm putting it to the church. I mean, I've seen a number of those that way. And in fact, uh, if you, if you um, well, I, I wouldn't point you this direction. Let me just give you the example of, of Abraham Piper, who I also, also referenced earlier in this, uh, this, uh, in, in this article. Uh, he's, he's the son of very famous pastor, John Piper. I've read many John Piper books. I know you've mm -hmm. been a John Piper fan over the years too. Um, and, and Abraham Piper has made himself famous on TikTok by railing against the church. Many people are drawn to his videos. In fact, um, I don't know if he began the movement um, of folks who call themselves not evangelical, but ex-evangelical. Okay, yeah. But if he didn't begin it, he's at least very prominent in that. Mm -hmm. So it's Abraham Piper against the world, in a sense, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. others against the world. And so, and we're drawn into that. I mean, many of our, many of our best movies in Hollywood are, yeah. are based upon that narrative. It's, it's something we often cheer for the underdog. Well, these folks, you know, who have deconstructed their faith often look like underdogs, especially when they approach it that way. It's mm -hmm. me against the mm -hmm. church. I'm the little guy exposing the big guy. Um, yeah, I think related to that as well is the, is the fifth reason that, um, that we're drawn into these stories. And it's, it's, it's the fact that there are very real pressures, um, very real pressures on us from the culture around us. You know, they're, they're, the culture around us is exerting great pressure upon the church uh, as the church is right now. There's no doubt about that. You know, when we think about um, other, other countries where uh, where there is true religious persecution that takes place. That religious persecution often finds itself uh, taking place in, in, in a physical shape. You know, in, in Iran, you might be arrested, beaten, and thrown in prison. You might have your kids taken away from you for following Jesus. Over here, you may just be canceled, in a sense. Hmm. You know, you may put something on, on Twitter, uh, even quoting a scripture, you may, uh, you may be preaching a series through Romans and you, know, you get to in, in the Romans chapter one and now you have to talk about gender and sexual ethics in a way that reflects what God communicates, but that's not popular in the world around us. Yeah. 
And so I actually say this in the article uh, to some degree, um, you know, that some questions are difficult because they're difficult to answer. Okay, so some questions are difficult because the answers are hard to find or the answers are difficult to get to. Some questions are difficult because the answers just aren't popular. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's, that's maybe the best way to frame the struggle that we have in culture right now and why we're drawn into these stories because we feel that too. I feel that too That's in my good. life. And so when we see somebody um, maybe coming out and saying, here's why I left the church, we feel that struggle too. I, I'm tempted to compromise mm-hmm. at times. And so that's, uh, that's number five. Number six is this, and I think this is the really, really Im- important one. And actually, this, um, this connects back with the story that we looked at in, in the message this weekend uh, that comes from John chapter four. And I, I would just really encourage you to read that story. Beautiful story of Jesus engaging with this Samaritan woman at, at this well, this well of Jacob. And the Samaritans were people who had this memory of what it was like to be Jewish, but hadn't been really truly Jewish in years. They were uh, people who, during the time when the Assyrian army came and invaded the Northern Kingdom, um, they were these people who uh, were left behind and weren't taken away into captivity, but then intermarried with the pagan Assyrians. And so they were Jewish, but they were also pagan. They kept alive some of the Jewish tra- traditions, but they also brought a lot of paganism mm-hmm. into uh, their, their cultural experience. And so very similar to, I think, what it looks like to be in a post-Christian culture, where you still value a lot of these things from Christianity, but you don't really want Christianity, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so this Samaritan woman uh, has a very similar experience. And uh, Jesus engages with her. They begin by having this conversation about just water at the bottom of this well. Jesus is thirsty, wants some water so he can quench his thirst. And it leads to this conversation about living water. So it moves from uh, a conversation that takes place in the physical space to the metaphysical or spiritual space, um, the, the religious space in a sense you might even say. So it, all of a sudden that the conversation shifts. So they go from talking about water to talking about living water to talking about eternal life, to talking about what life is really all about. And in that, Jesus has this conversation with, uh, with this woman where she walks away after Jesus just reveals one portion of her life in a sense that, um, you know, Jesus at one point in time says, okay, if you want to have this conversation further, why don't you go get your, your husband and come back? We'll talk. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. The man you're now living with is not your husband. Um, and we don't know how she got to that place, uh, whether she had been married and divorced five times, whether uh, you know, she'd had husbands who had walked out on her, whether she'd had husbands who died. Uh, we, we don't know how she got there, <clears throat> but we do know that the result is that she was living at a place of just of brokenness. Um, you, know, you can see that in, in just the story, and, and certainly you can imagine that to, to be as well. Um, And so Jesus reveals that part of her story. She says, you're a prophet out of that. But what she represents back to the people of the town, because the well was outside of the town, is you got to come see this guy who just told me everything I'd ever done. What do you mean everything I ever did? How did he tell you everything you ever did? And in a sense, what she is saying is, he told me my story. But I don't think it was just about, he told me the fact that I'd had five husbands and the guy I was living with now wasn't married to. He talked to me about dipping in a well that you got to go back to every day to get a drink. And that water can only satisfy for a short time. 
But what he offered me was something that would satisfy my soul forever. I mean, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful thing. And that's what Jesus says is, I want to give you something that will satisfy your soul forever so that you're not chasing after all these things that won't satisfy, that won't fulfill mm-hmm. you. Like the postmodern belief that we can make our own truth or make our own meaning in life or that nothing matters more than happiness. And, you know, I know I say that kind of cynically and in a pejorative way, and, 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 but in a sense, it's because I believe those things aren't true. I, I know the truth is that the only place I can find true satisfaction is in, is in mm-hmm. God. And so here's the sixth reason. It's, it's because we, and sometimes many times in the church, but the culture certainly as well, we've forgotten just how beautiful the Christian worldview and faith are yeah. and how, how the Christian worldview provides us with answers to some of life's most difficult questions in a way that nothing else can. You know, how do we deal with the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Well, we know that there's a God who loves us through all our suffering, who stepped down and suffered himself. We understand that there's a God who gives us free will so that we can make good choices and bad choices. And so there's nothing that can even help us understand evil and suffering the way that the Christian worldview can. But so many other of life's difficult questions, and that's just one, and that's just brushing the surface of it. So many uh, of of the other difficult questions we struggle with in life, we can only find truly satisfying answers in them by going to God and laying our questions before Him, by searching out these answers in Scripture. And so Mm -hmm. we've forgotten just how beautiful that worldview is. Yeah, I understand there are some things that sometimes we're tempted to reject in the Christian worldview, um, but that's within that worldview, we'll find the answers to our most, our deepest and most difficult questions, I believe. So again, I think those six reasons, you can find that article on renew.org. Yeah. I'll link it in, in the, the show notes as well. Um, I think maybe that helps under helps explain some of what we're talking about and why we're drawn into these uh, these mm-hmm. stories, why mm-hmm. we're drawn to these stories uh, of when people have deconstructed their faith. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, Paul. I think it is a really helpful re- resource. I'm just going to reiterate that. I recommend checking that out. It's six reasons. Uh, let's get the name of the article again, right? Six reasons we are drawn to Christianity's deconstruction stories by Paul on renew.org. Very helpful resource. Um, so, just to just to boil this down, Paul, mm-hmm. there's a lot of information. Yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff. Yes. This series, like a lot of lot of information, a lot of new stuff, might be learning or at least getting a better understanding for. Where would you land this if we were just to ask what is what's a practical step out of this message, out of this conversation? What do we do with all this? Yeah, I, <clears throat> can I come back to the first point um, and, and just say again, we we all have questions. Yeah. Um, so here's what I'd say. Um, first, if, if you're connected with this church, we as the leaders are going to try to set a tone that says this will be a safe place to ask yeah. difficult questions. Um, if you're connected with a church and it's not Grace Chapel uh, and you're involved in leadership or um, you know, maybe just engaged as, a, as an active volunteer there, whatever your role, uh, whatever the role you play, um, be and become a safe place for others to ask questions. I th- I'd say that's the first pit, first thing, and that, that's an attitude shift. You know, again, I, 
I state in the article plainly, I have been around church leaders who have made it plain that the church is not a safe place to ask difficult questions. Mm. We've got to change that. Yeah. That has to change. You know, again, that goes back to the place of authenticity. I'd say, second, if you're a church leader and you've struggled with faith, I'm going to confess to you it's not easy for me just to sit here and publicly say as a church leader, I've struggled with my faith at times, that I have a deconstruction story of my own. Now, I'm very thankful to God. I have a reconstruction story that I can tell. But if you're a church leader um, and you've struggled with doubt and you have reconstructed your faith, be honest with your folks about the fact that you have struggled with doubt as well. And then third, if you're somebody struggling with doubt, find a safe place to ask those questions among people who continue to hold, I think, a, a solid, deeply biblically rooted worldview, uh, as opposed to running to other sources to find answers to those questions. Again, a lot of people wind up in a place that is not um, orthodox biblical Christianity when they start a- asking those questions and they can't find uh, church folks will talk to them about those questions. They go elsewhere. Well, what's going to happen when that takes place? Well, you go somewhere else for your answers. You're going to take the answers that that other perspective is, is giving you. And so, uh, so it shouldn't be a surprise when people deconstruct their faith if the, the church is not a safe place to ask those questions. So again, um, the church needs to be a safe place to ask those questions. Um, leaders within a church, be honest about the fact that you've struggled if you've struggled as well. And then if you do have questions, um, don't keep those to, the, don't keep those yeah. to yourself. Find somebody that That's you really can good. trust um, and have this conversation. Let me say this as well. I'll also link this in the show notes. Um, if you've got questions and, and your church is not a safe place or maybe you can't find the answer because the question is difficult, I think a lot of churches are becoming safe places. So not to be so critical of the church. Um, I'm also going to link uh, an, an organization, a resource that's connected with Renew.org called Room for Doubt, where you can ask your difficult question and you will receive a response to that difficult question. So there are great resources yeah. Um, yeah. that are available if you're struggling with a difficult question where you can go and find an answer that will satisfy. Um, and, and instead of deconstructing, it'll help you build your faith up. That's good. Awesome. Well, thank you for that, Paul. That is, that's really good. Uh, it gives a lot of great stuff to consider, some steps to take out of this. So thank you for sharing that, and thank you all for tuning in to Practice Makes Faithful. Yeah. It's been good. We hope, uh, hope you'll join us again next week as we move forward with this series into the third part. Thank you all for joining us today. Yeah. See you next week.